Like, it's true, you can ask us on the road to Damascus. Yeah, but do you know... Welcome to Christ in the Chaos, where a pastor's kid and a kids' ministry director talk about raising a Christ-centered family. We're not sure we know what we're doing, but we are right in the thick of it. And this is how we're finding Christ in the Chaos. Hey, and welcome back to Christ in the Chaos. I'm Kathleen. And I'm Joel. And this is our first take. (laughs) No, it's, we do it live every time. Yeah, no, it, we no. never mess up the beginning. Ever. It's no edits. We just record it, paste it, put it out there. Um, we didn't say the name of the wrong podcast on the first uh, try-in. That was not a thing that happened. Well, the really ironic thing is, is you didn't even say the name of the other <laughs> the podcast, podcast that we I'm on. do together. Yeah. <laughs> well, we had just been talking about your third. We really like podcasting, guys. We just love listening to ourselves talk. Um, so let's start with the family check-in. Something good for everyone to start with. Old time check in with your family now. <laughs> How are you doing, wife? I'm doing okay. Um, I have two. I'm in the middle of the work week. It is Wednesday. We record on Wednesdays generally. Um, and I have two very high pressure things coming up for work this weekend. One on Saturday and one on Sunday. And they both require me to juggle a lot of information in my own head I have like lists up the yin yang and and all of the written um preparation I can do but it really requires a lot of like mental juggling and keeping everything fresh and ready to just say it and that's a lot to keep in your head when you have two presentations in that way in one weekend so you you need some prayers yeah and I yeah we need a prayer request stinger oh pray for us also the kids are fine um, they had a great Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday um, with like really fun stuff with my family. And then your parents came to visit. And yeah, it was Friday, Saturday with your family. And then Sunday afternoon, all Monday and Tuesday morning with my parents and my mom. Said that like they're different people, but my dad wasn't there Tuesday. Well, yeah. And also your your dad is not the coming attraction when it when they when they come to play. Your mom is. You know, dads rarely are. I actually spent a good portion of this night tonight having one of my children (laughs) say, okay, but I want mommy now. Yeah. So, I mean, that's my check-in, I guess, (laughs) right, is I'm feeling a little exhausted from this weekend from doing everything humanly and physically possible to give my children a good life and then feeling a little emotionally exhausted from having spent 20 minutes with a tired toddler telling me, he's not a toddler. You're not mommy. He's Whatever. not a toddler. He's almost in kindergarten. He's at the very at the very youngest described as a late preschooler. Um anyway. <laughs> uh so our topic today is my the story of how I became a Christian, which I feel like is there have got to be literally hundreds of people because I have like more, you know, hundreds of Facebook friends that are, have been asking themselves probably for years, how did that happen? Um, because I think I'm one of those people like, you know, those stories in the Bible where there's like the least likely people like Matthew and Zacchaeus. Or and, Saul on the road to Damascus. Yes. There's a whole song about it. No, but 
all of those people. I'm like one of those. I'm like throwing Bibles out the window as a teenager kind of person. And um, now I'm I'm nuts for it. Um, right, so I well, think let's get to the story then. Let's start with. Well, I guess start at the beginning. Where did you grow up in the church? Were you born in the church? Um, my family. I would say we were like Christians light growing up. We did occasionally go to uh, church on Christmas. Um, I don't remember going on Easter, but we must have gone at least one Easter. Um, I was baptized when I was young. And um, so like I had a general, like I had been to church before. We went for, I would guess about 18 months on a semi-regular basis. Um, but like, I would guess about 18 months, three weeks, four days. That's a pretty... I was trying to, I've always tried to like less than two years. figure out how it feels like it was more than a year. I don't really know. Cause I was a kid. I know I was like between like five and eight whenever it happened, but I don't really know. I think I that's was, more than 18 months. I think, no, I'm not saying that I was between <laughs> five and eight. I'm sure that the 18 month period happened between. Um, but I mean, I think the important thing on the first part of my life is like, okay, that's my church background. My like life background is that I had rockin' parents that loved me very much and provided a very good, um, not just like materially good, or they gave me lots of opportunities, but I was just very loved by two very involved parents and two siblings that I was very close with. Um, so as a, as a kid, I was just very generally happy and I was, and church was a very, 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 very small part of my life, um, as a child. Okay. But you had that kind of rock at the bottom of your stomach of Christianity, I guess. Yeah. Right. You had a you had a nugget of it. The only thing I remember from church, um, really, is that they challenged us to learn the books of the Bible. And if you challenged me to do anything as a child, I did it and I did it faster and better than everybody else. And that is exactly what I did. I was the first one and one of only two people to memorize it. It was I think it was the the second grade Sunday school class. And I was like, I was for Seas Candy, which I didn't even like Seas Candy because they had too many weird flavors. Um, but I still, I learned them immediately. Yeah, there's a whole segment of our listeners going, yeah, the Seas Candy thing. We all did that. We all memorized the books of the Bible for Seas Candy. Yes. Yeah. That, was the, like that, that is literally like the only thing or, I remember about it. Um, okay. So then you kind of, you stopped, your family stopped going to church. You stopped going to church. Really? It was, I, honestly, I was like a pretty little kid, but I have a feeling I was a pretty big part of why we didn't go. First of all, because of swimming. Um, I started swimming like pretty competitively when I was seven or eight. And that meant a lot of weekends gone. And, um, and also I was just like resistant. I was kind of already rejecting it from that age. And I was also allergic to the church. Um, that sounds really stupid, but they had, uh, olive trees all around the church. And every time I would come home and I would be swollen, metaphorically, no, I was swollen and, um, snotty. And we figured out that I was allergic to olive trees, um, from going to church as a kid. It was like physically bad for me. Um, why we didn't think hmm, allergy shots or something. I don't know, but it was like the nineties. So I'm going to give my parents a break I on think that that's one. That's a good plug for go back and listen to our sports life balance, how to balance sports with your kids. Yeah, But it really was but, honestly, it was, and that's the whole thing. I think when people are like, Oh, people don't go to church because of sports. And I'm like, no, people don't go to church because they don't want to go to, because they haven't been inspired to go to church. Um, sports are just the excuse. And that was the case here. I mean, if, if it had been something that was central and important to our family, we would have made it work. It just wasn't. It never was. So how'd that work out? Not so good. 
Um, I would say that I was like the happiest, happy-go-lucky kid in the world until um, I was 14 years old. I'd been swimming for um, swimming for almost a decade. Had been swimming competitively for seven years with the same coaches the whole time, and it's going to sound like the biggest first world problem in the world, but my coaches got fired. Um, and it, my whole world fell apart. Um, I like, I do, I have enough perspective and I'm an adult to hear how stupid that sounds, but it was like all of the people that I trusted around me, um, felt like they were part of the decision and I lost trust in all of, in my whole swimming community. Um, I lost uh, daily access to people who I really considered to be like a second set of parents. And I was 14 years old. And when bad stuff happens when you're 14, it sticks with you for your entire life. Um, and that lack of trust and, um, that, that kind of trauma, as stupid as it sounds, it really was trauma for me. I was literally never the same after that happened. Um, sounds like you needed a Safe place to land, some kind of rock, a foundation. I could have built your house on something sturdy. Well, instead, I tried like for years to, I like, I somehow like very unhealthily connected my swimming performance to their um, value or that if I could just be good enough at swimming, um, I could prove that they were good enough at coaching and that they had made the wrong decision or what I was just, I really was seeking some sort of validation or some sort of my feelings, um, through swimming. And guess what? Not everybody gets to go to the Olympics and it didn't happen. And it was just, I wouldn't say that I was depressed. I don't think that was ever an issue for me. Um, but I was, um, it was depressing and, um, I had other issues that kind of arose out of that period of my life that really just started with, with this trauma. Um, like high school, um, I was, I basically stopped, this is around the time that I really stopped engaging in school at all. Um, I was always in like honors and, um, like we have our rapid learner program classes. I cheated and scraped my way through every class in high school. I hated everyone who was happy. I was like the most bitter eye-rolling person to anybody like cheerleaders and then when I got to college sorority and fraternity people it was like I literally thought that they were the stupidest people in the world and that I was so much better than everyone um I thought generally that all people that didn't think like me were idiots including Christians especially Christians um I never got one of those little a pretty common mindset no for people. I I well, it's a pretty common mindset for for like angsty teenagers too yeah. I wanted one of those little Darwin things for the back of my car um I just didn't understand. That'll show them. Yeah. <laughs> like, but, but, um, and, and it, all of this was going along with just, in addition to being like mildly depressed by the, the change of direction in my life, um, I was still swimming, which means that I was, um, working out 25 hours a week, um, with two hours of commute, six days a week. Uh, practices where I had to be there at 4.45 in the morning, 30 minutes away. I left the house uh, four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. I left the house at four o'clock in the morning and got back usually after 9 p.m. Um, and the one thing that I found solace in was my high school mock trial team, but that was also the source of um, another big problem. Okay, that's really depressing. 
Um, can you make it worse though? I mean, uh, what else? What else is going on in your life? There? I, I, it did get worse. Um, imagine a teenage girl um, that was just depressed. Um, I had a lot of anxiety. I wasn't sleeping. That is the one of the things that I still deal with today is the sleep deprivation from high school. Um, I had no source of happiness, no source of control of my life. I didn't know what my purpose was or where I was headed. And so I, and then I met a dude, um, and not me, not you. Um, I do show up later in the story. And, and this, and this guy was just, um, without going into the details, we were together for five years. The relationship was like absolutely toxic. Um, I would say for both of us, it brought out the worst in both of us. It brought out the most pathetic in me. Um, and it was bad. It was bad. And and one of the things that actually always depresses me when I look back on it um, is I think of the people that experienced me in life, like only in that window, um, specifically college people, because like high school people, a lot of people knew me before. And obviously there's people who have known me after. Um, but college actually encompassed the whole time that we were together. And um, I just think of the like diminished, pathetic version of me that they got. Um, and maybe people don't see it that way. And I and I was we lived far apart, so I wasn't always like pathetic, but I was always under the control and always acting pathetic, um, which is weird because your your other ex-boyfriend is a delight. He is a delight. <laughs> oh, so during that time, I was like a very outspoken atheist. Um, I was one of those atheists, literally, like, I don't have a problem with people who are atheists at all. Um, I have been there, but I was like one of the jerks, you know, like one of the like, you're all idiots, you're all sheep. What are you doing? Um, and part of it was sheep. part of it was that I had built a narrative um, in my mind that um, my coaches being fired had something to do with religion. That was Looney Tunes. It wasn't true, um, but I had to blame it on something. And so um, I thought all religion was not just be- like dumb, but blaming but evil. bad things that happened to you on God. I think is a pretty normal reaction people it have. Wa- but you know what? It wasn't blaming them on God because I didn't believe on believe in God. It was blaming them on the people that that um, it was blaming them on Christians or or people who practiced religion. Yeah, it's usually who made the mistake. Yeah. Well, it wasn't. It's in almost never case, God. That was in that case. It was absolutely <laughs> like not true that that was the source of it. Um, or not just that God wasn't the source of it, but that the people involved were not, um, religiously motivated in any way. But I had made that connection, um, out of just a sheer need to do it. I Um, feel like we haven't talked about me in a while. Let's talk about me. So that was like the turning point we had. Um, I had been in this relationship for five years. I not quite five years, four and a half years. I feel like I had pretty much been hollowed out and was not at all the person that I really am. Um, I just became something way less than, and just not myself. Um, and then I met you and, um, we all became friends, but I think like in our friend group of law school that you and I particularly connected very fast. We were study buddies, which if you haven't been, I guess to like, one of those weird, like, medical school or law school. Like, your study buddy is the only person you see ever. Yeah. Like, you don't go but out. Think, you don't see your friends or family. You just hang out with your study buddy. Um, I mean, and part of it was that you were very, you were kind of annoying. Um, I had 
this like very like Love you too. <laughs> well, it was this very like um this armor on all of the time to protect me from like feeling vulnerable or having somebody speak truth into my life or or messing up the narrative that everyone was worthless but me and that my way of looking at things were the was the only way of looking at things and I was just hiding in this darkness people couldn't be good and I maintained and the main thing I was always working on was maintaining the facade that my relationship was a normal and healthy thing um and that people who didn't understand it oh they just didn't get us they just didn't get me and him um and you disrupted that life view and it was annoying. It was irritating. Um, well, I mean, right. Christ said, I, I'm not here to bring peace. <laughs> you, and you I'm here it. to bring disruption. Um, so there were a couple of things that I think caused me, despite the fact that you were just kind of this like grating um, irritation to my facade. Um, and that the first thing was so that, other than saying I'm irritating this is going to be the useful part that people can use in their own life conversations here when they is, talk to others. Here is the here is the way God used Joel. The first thing he did was that he saw me the way God opened his eyes to see me the way God saw me. Um which is nuts cuz I was so mean and so bitter and so like just kind of angry all the time. I honestly don't remember you being mean or angry. I know. I really think that there is something about I really think that God did something supernaturally weird with you because you would just say to me, like, you're so kind, you're so good, you care about people. And I was like, that is, I like the facade, the like the, the thing that I was building up was like, that's not true. That's not who I am. Um, but it was like, it was like God was, was speaking to me and saying how he saw me through you. And eventually the thing that really got to me was, was hearing that narrative about myself, um, that you are kind, you are good, you are worthy of love. Um, and, uh, I didn't believe that about myself and you were like a broken record of that. Um, almost all of the time, sometimes very inappropriately. So, um, well, and I, I think I was right. I mean, you, no, I don't the disagree you with that you. Is that in is there who was, I was. It's just, yeah, it you didn't... just were like, you're just a bad liar. And I think I'm just better at <laughs> seen BS than you are because I grew up in a family of liars. And and I, that is, well, so that is like the next really important thing is that um, God put us together and one of the things that, um, that he prepared you for was um, while I had been pointed out repeatedly over and over again, um, he's a jerk, he's bad by other people, um, this relationship is bad because he's mean to you and, and he does bad things to you and you shouldn't have to put up with it. You took a totally different tact in that you pointed and were like, you are, you're broken in this way. Um, you came to me, you said, this is why you're codependent. This is what you are. You are a codependent. This is how you're acting. This is how it manifests itself. And, um, and you didn't even say, this is how it needs to change. You literally just left me with the information you revealed my brokenness to me in a way that I could understand. And that was the only thing, despite all of the people who were telling me that there was something wrong with him. It wasn't until I looked into myself and saw it was broken in myself that I was able to do anything about it. Well, it wasn't me. It was the spirit. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I know. And um, when we got to the breaking point, um, it, when I basically, when I, when those two things converged, when I started to see myself the way you saw me, and started to believe the genuineness of the way, like that you were being genuine 
And when I started to deal with my brokenness, I went to a Codependence Anonymous meeting. I read Codependent No More. Um, Codependent No More. I started um, getting in touch with my therapist that I had been seeing before, and all of a sudden, the the chips started to fall. And um, I have somebody that described it to me as when you are in a health, unhealthy relational dynamic, um, that it's like both of you have your heads over the side of the boat. And um, when one person gets well um, and sits up in the boat, the whole boat rocks. And, um, and I sat up in the boat. And as soon as I could see what was really going on around me, it was easy to leave. And that's what I did. So that's how you left the darkness. How did you find the light? Where did Jesus come in? Well, he didn't come in right away. Um, I did not put together that Jesus was a part of this. You were a Christian. You um, repeatedly and unabashedly talked about your faith on a regular basis. Um, God is real. This is my life. This is what I believe. This is who I am on a fundamental level. You weren't really evangelizing in the way like it was never and it should be what you believe too. Um, but you were around me and you were that person to your very core. And so um, at this point in the, in the, in the story, Jesus is unquestionably a part of it. He reached his down, hand out. He uh, sent you. He spoke to me through you. He pulled me out of the pit. He showed me my, that I needed him, that I was broken, but I had no idea that at this point that it was him that I needed. Um, so the thing that I remember about leaving is like sitting in the, the driveway of my parents' house. This is like the thing that I always think back on is that the, the night I left, I drove to my parents' house because that's where I stayed for a few weeks before I found a new apartment. And I just sat in the driveway and I, now I know what that feeling was. Like that was like God sitting there with me being like, I am here and you are not alone and this is okay. But like when I like reveled in the gravity of what I had just done, um, something that I never thought I would have been brave enough or strong enough to do and realized that I had been free, that I was free and that it was over and that I didn't have to go back to it. Um, that was that was like when looking back, that was like the chains breaking. Um, I just didn't know that that's what was going on at the time. OK, now I feel like we've been making me sound really great for too long let's let's get honest i'm, uh, I'm not the hero of the story no here. you're not the, i mean you are in some ways the hero of the story but the reality is that um after me and that other guy broke up um there were about eight months where joel and i entered into the sort of dysfunctional relationship that you might imagine a 22 year old woman and a 26 year old man would have um that warranted an actual relationship um, and that was just the only reason I bring it up is like that is just the reality of what happened. Um, I. Well, I was refusing to date you because you had just gotten out of a five year relationship. You and were, you were refusing throwing yourself to date at me, me on paper. You were <laughs> throwing yourself at me because you loved me. Well, and that is true. I think um, at the time I believed that I was in love with you and everyone around me, including you, was like, you're a loon. This is not a healthy like way to direct your attention and your affection and whatever. And that sometimes two things can be true at once. That was so true. My poor family um, must've been freaking out the whole time. They were so right to freak out. I was so 
vulnerable. And if anybody else had been there to pick up the pieces, it would have been an unmitigated catastrophe. Um, but I did, I did believe that I loved you. And even now I believe that I loved you then. I, it was not a, I was not in a healthy place, but those feelings were genuine. And I am awful lovable. It came from a real place. Um, the other thing is like being in a relationship with you in that way was like a fail safe for me. Um, he was never going to take me back if we pursued a relationship of any kind. And just by engaging in a relationship with you in that way, um, I was I was protecting myself from ever falling back into that situation, which had happened once before um, where we had broken up and I really thought I was done and I was not strong enough to not go back to it. Um, and the third reason that I'm going to justify from my side, though you're still hosed on this, is that I didn't know Jesus yet at that point and I didn't know what kind of life I was called to from my perspective, what we were doing, there was nothing wrong with it. And, um, the rescue had come, but I needed the like healing in the new life. And, um, that came with time. It did not come right away. Okay. So you're in the boat. Now you need to get, you need, you're sitting up in the boat. You're looking around. You need to get in a better boat. How's the boat come? Honestly, really slowly. Um, We spent about seven months in that holding pattern where you refused to acknowledge that there was more to... I refused to acknowledge that we were actually dating. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it was. And the one thing that I remember, the like linchpin on it was like me kind of openly expressing to you for the first time that I would like go to church and that I would take it seriously and and that I was willing to do that for you. We were in the car on the way to the Yosemite trip to Folsom or not to Folsom to um, whatever that place is called, Fresno. And, um, and that is when things started to like turn into like a way more serious and you started to kind of like emotionally engage, not that you weren't emotionally engaged before, but where you were kind of like, oh, this has a future and we're a thing and and that's where we're headed. Um, but the thing that really started the process was not going to church and it was not prayer and it was not reading the Bible. The the thing that started me going in the process after being saved by Jesus into a life in Jesus was starting to live into that identity that you had made for me. Um, that you, you hadn't made it for me. It was my true identity. But this, you are kind. You are good. You can be happy. You deserve to be loved. When I started believing those things and living those things, um, I started to see a life that I could have that was different than the life I had before. And So we can't just save people by making them go to church and praying. We have to actively engage with them. Yeah. And oh. that's, that's really what it was is that, and I, and I, you spoke God's love into my life. And when I started to believe it, that's what opened me up to what was being said at church, to what I was reading in the Bible. Um, the second thing that besides me living into that identity was watching your family um, kind of as an outsider. Um, when I came to your house, um, you guys live on lived on a parsonage that was attached to the church property. And that door was basically a revolving door of randos from the church. A all parsonage the time. is a house owned by the church that the pastor lives in, often right next to the house. Yeah. For it, those of you who don't know what a parsonage is. There was no privacy. There was no time that was truly yours. And it was there was no thing that was yours. Um 
there was no bitterness when people people came in and there was no intrusion when people had holidays with you. It was this life where what you had in terms of time and space and privacy was not yours. It belonged to something else. And that your family had so much peace with that. It was like, I, I remember thinking they have nothing to lose. There's no, there's no fear in this life. There's no anxiety in this life. There is nothing that they are being deprived of. They don't have an attitude of entitlement. Their attitude is that this is not mine. This is somebody else's and we're going to do, I mean, this is all for God. And I could see that lived out in your family better than I have seen it out live, it lived out in any family since I've become a Christian. Um, and so when you combine those two big things um, and then you start going to church, it kind of all starts coming together. Okay, the third thing besides um, living into that identity. I think it's like the third, third thing. No, nope. the third thing besides living into that identity, watching your family live out their Christian faith um, in that kind of selfless way. And was the church community, um, which I, we did not have a church in Sacramento. We were, we would like intermittently attend church in Sacramento when you felt like going church shopping, but you weren't really invested in any church. So our church for the first um, few years we were together was your childhood church. We really did go once every six weeks, at least, um, down to, uh, Emmanuel Lutheran and Easton and about um, two and a half hours from Sacramento. Yeah. And we, um, we got married there. I got there and I intended to do like all of our wedding myself, but turns out I am only one person and you ended up doing like an obscene amount of work for school while you were there because you had a deadline that you had to meet um, that couldn't have been done at any other time. And then in retrospect was so stupid. We do school. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, um, I was kind of hosed in getting the wedding set up and to watch the church community. And honestly, it wasn't just your church community because your church was on a block with also the Presbyterian church community. But so when the Lutheran church community and the Presbyterian church community came together to make sure that our wedding happened. And when um, the people that lived like close, like were just there all day, making sure that I was taken care of and that um, the things were going to actually happen that were supposed to happen. I was like, Oh, I was hosed and these people who do not know me really came to rescue me. And granted, they knew you, but and you they weren't helped really... you anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Fun side story. Touché. The Presbyterian Church had to call an emergency council meeting to change the rules in their constitution in order to allow dancing in the social hall so that we could borrow their social hall for our reception. Yeah, they had a bigger social hall, so we used theirs. Um so when we got back, when we got married, um, we, not too soon after we moved to Santa Cruz, we, we church shopped around in Santa Cruz. We weren't there for very long. We came back and we started church shopping around in Sacramento and we found our current church and there were two things that drew us in, I would say, to our current church. One was the, um, we were, I had a lawyer job. Joel was unemployed for a very long time. And one of the older lawyers at the church kind of got wind of the fact that Joel was unemployed and just started throwing like research jobs, research odd jobs, odd legal jobs at Joel. I, w for the purposes of what we can tell to throw money at us um, because he wanted to take care of us, which we have really taken to heart and tried um, as best we can and where we are financially um, to do for younger people. And we will continue to do that because that was, 
it wasn't that big of a deal, like financially, but what it said about um, what church does for each other was a big deal. And it was very formative, I think, for, for both of us as adult Christians. Um, and then the other thing was they, the church in kind of the exact same fashion, because Joel had been unemployed and because Joel was a PK in the ELCA, they, um, they threw the children's ministry job at him. Um, because I was working as a lawyer and, um, he was very capable of doing it. Um, not as well as I was, but let's get to that later. (laughs) Um, but they threw that job at him and that was like the same attitude of like, we're going to take, we have this opportunity. We're going to take care of you and it's going to be a thing and it's going to be great. Um, so ultimately Joel got the children's ministry job in, um, uh, December after being unemployed for like two and a half years. And then it was a fi- bad time to get out of law school. It was a really bad time to get out of law school and then got a job and um, uh, was hired just a few months later. And then a few months after that, we switched roles. Um, I was getting, I found out I was pregnant with Dane around the same time the job, they, we switched roles and I became um, doing, started leading children's ministry. And then um, I quit my lawyer job and started doing children's ministry and other church work full time which was great. Um, and I like was going along doing children's ministry and it was fun and it was good. And I did children's sermons and I thought that I really finally had it together that I like understood this, uh, church thing and this Jesus thing. And obviously, I mean, I'm working in ministry at this point. Um, and I thought that I, I got it. Um, but all of this time had passed and, um, my mountaintop experience came years not a lot of years but more than one year into actually doing kids ministry um i was doing a children's sermon and um it was the prodigal son we were doing the power of parables sermon series so somebody who was very nerdy could go figure out based on our history when this actual sermon was Um, but we're doing the prodigal son and i told this story i told the story of the bad relationship and being in the pit and how uh, God came for me in the pit and God was um, so excited and that I was, you know, he reached down for me and pulled me out of the pigsty and all of that. And as I started to tell this story, I was just flooded with emotion. And I, of course, had processed it the week before that this is what had happened to me and that the story was that I was rescued by Jesus. And that was the thing. But when I started to articulate it and to um, kind of like tell my testimony to other people for the first time, it was like that is like the most intense feeling of the spirit of God in my life. And this girl that is um, was in our ministry at the time, she was like six or so, who had probably no idea what I was talking about when it came to the actual substance of the sermon. Um, She happens to be like one of the most sensitive to other people um like she's she's like a little conduit or a little like antenna of of other people's emotions she is that is like the defining trait and she just stood up in the middle of the sermon and walked over to me and just wrapped her arms around me and it was like it was like he was like god was there saying this is where you're supposed to be and you're reading the, you're reading it right and I am here and 
this is your future. And it was like, I, I will never forget that moment because it, it didn't, it's not that it didn't feel real, but it, it didn't, it's like surreal. No, it's, no, it didn't. It's not that the, the Jesus didn't feel real at that point, but I had not felt it the way I feel it and have felt it from that moment on. And I actually feel kind of like bad for people who don't get their mountaintop experience. Cause I know that there are people that go through and live faithful Christian lives and go from beginning to end. And I like think that my hope, I kind of pray that my kids on some level will always just be with God and that they won't stray away and that it'll be fine. But part of me wants them to have that, that moment where yeah. God comes say, for them. Right. As a, you know, baptized mainline Christian, I'm a little jealous because I was, you know, I was born and baptized pretty high up the mountain. And like, and so it's, there's no big yeah. change yeah. because it's just, it's only incremental. Right. You know, I've had times where I've gone down the mountain a little and up the mountain a little, but I've always been kind of at the top. But yeah, let's take a deep breath while you collect yourself. <laughs> How did the people around you react to this new Kathleen? Um, the, the people who were closest to me, especially during this time, were my family. And I will say, to their credit, I've never said a bad thing against the church or even really outwardly questioned my decision at the time. Um, they really didn't even once, but I think it's safe to say that they were very, very wary of their very vulnerable and traumatized daughter suddenly finding Jesus and a boyfriend at the same time. When else are you going to find Jesus? <laughs> I mean, it was like very understandably, they were kind of looking at me with their teeth clenched being like, what the heck are you doing right now? Um, and I get that. Um, so time has passed. And I, um, with regard to my family, and I know that they see um, how, first of all, just like objectively happier I am, how much more loving I am, how much more um, sympathy I have for other people, and empathy I have for other people, just like how I'm like living into a purposeful life. I know that they see that. And um, I give, I am very thankful that they let me figure it out and didn't try to warn me against it because that could have been really, um, that could have been a very isolating, um, thing and they were open to it and they, they let me figure it out on my own. I'm very thankful for that. What about everyone else? The weird thing is like, I have not had this conversation about what happened or where I am with that many people. And I, nobody has literally no one has given me any flack at all. Um, nobody has been mean or reject all of the things that like Christians are like, oh, the secular world doesn't want to hear or doesn't want. That didn't happen. Everybody's been supportive. And um, sometimes they're like, oh, like we see a difference in you. And I'm willing to be patient. I have time in theory um, for people to who don't trust the change in me to be revealed to them that it's a good thing. Um, when we, when I broke up with the dude, um, it just didn't look good because everybody knew that we had our relationship to some extent and there was a lot of judgment. And I remember thinking to myself, time will tell. People will know. Time will pass. People will see what happened. 
and I can trust in time. And I think the same thing is true with a Christian conversion. Um, as if I live this life and I do it authentically and I do it well and I glorify God with my life, um, people will see in time that it is an authentic change and that it is for the better. Um, and so that's that is what I'm banking on in that sense. Um, after the so since then, there's just been a couple of things. Um, I kind of came to understand what the Holy Spirit is. Um, I think that the hallmark of our senior pastor's ministry, and I make it the hallmark of my children's ministry and of my life, is um, asking for the Holy Spirit constantly, every day, multiple times for me and for my children and my family and for my kids and for my church. Um, That is not something that I ignore, and that is not something that um, I look over. And I think that that has changed my life drastically, even just since I started doing that. Um, another thing that has even ramped me up further from the experience on the mountaintop is uh, the studying of the Bible. Um, something that I've done in prayer. Um, I, I wrap up that time together. Um, so I consider it to be kind of the same thing, but I've done that and all of those things. I just, I am, I am nuts for this life now. Um, I have a brand new life. Um, Jesus came for me in the pit. He pulled me out, rescued me, and then gave me the time I needed to see what was really happening. So you have a brand new life and I'm lucky to be part of it, but your brand new life can get a little weird. <laughs> Good Let's talk about that right now. So that came up. All right. So we went to lunch this weekend with some friends. And we were at a a Mexican restaurant. And we had a little side dish of sour cream. And the boys were sharing, because we're cheap, a, a little boxed apple juice with, you know, the little straws and the little plastic containers. Or little plastic sleeves. And we were talking to our, our friends who are newish friends. We're trying to get to know them. And we weren't paying as much attention to our youngest child as we should have been. And we turned back and he was using the plastic sleeve as a spoon to eat the sour cream. You're laughing like that's a really unusual kid thing. But I think that that's actually pretty common. I You just, know your nephew does it. Uh, you know your niece does it. You know, it's one of those things Dane's where girlfriend does it. we had to, it's like, we have to teach him like, no, that's not like use a spoon <laughs> to uh, eat sour cream. Okay. I know. So we took away the plastic straw because we're good parents and we're like, you can't eat with plastic wrappers. That's trash. And it'll get caught in your throat. And we turned back to what we were doing. And then a few seconds later, we heard slurping um, and we turned around and he just had the cup and was just drinking straight from it. I don't really blame him. Sour cream is delicious. He had been dipping his chips like a good boy. Uh, But then he ran out of chips, but not sour cream. Again, because we're cheap, he ran out of chips. No, because he had been taking my chips. Yeah. Which is really the moral of the story. Um, Your story was good. But I think it's important to know that don't share. No. It just, you know, it doesn't always have to be serious. And this came up. Sometimes it can just be Levi drinking sour cream like a soda. All right, wife, why don't you uh, pray us out? Uh, Lord, thank you for coming for me. Thank you for giving me a new life 
this life that I have that you have given me is yours. My kid's life is yours. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life bringing as many people into this new life with you. And help me to do that. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and be with me always. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please take a second to rate and subscribe to this podcast. It helps others to find us and to be hashtag blessed by the discussions that we have here. If you want to contact us, you can reach us on Instagram at Christ in the Chaos, or you can email us at Christ in the Chaos Pod at email.com. Until next week, we hope you have a peaceful week. But even if you don't, remember that you can find us and Jesus waiting for you in the chaos.